Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Good to have your company as we cast our eye once again across the vast expanse of the golf world to see what bright and shiny things might capture our attention. As regular listeners know, Rod Murray's my name, but if you're joining us for the first time, a special welcome. You've lucked into what should be a particularly thought-provoking episode, and I hope that you enjoy the journey. My regular co-host Adrian Logue isn't with us this week. The game's leading adjudicator on all things path is instead flexing his competitive muscles at the New South Wales Mid-Amateur Tournament on the state's mid-north coast. I'm sure that all of you, like me, will be keen to hear how that panned out when he returns next week. I had a sneaky look at the scores, but I'll let him explain when he comes back in uh, next week. In the meantime, though, what do we do for a replacement? As we did last time, we decided to take a a week off. We swap a Logue for a cruise in the form of Sydney-based architect Harley. Then we sprinkle in a dash of Mike Clayton, and according to the recipe book, they're all the ingredients you need for a fascinating golf discussion. Harley, good to have you back in the studio here at the Talking Golf Compound. Appreciate you jumping into the vacant chair at short notice again. Thanks, Rod. Good to be here. Yeah, and uh, looking forward to having a chat. And like a prisoner blinking in the light after being released from a lengthy sentence from Melbourne, we're joined by course architect and commentator extraordinaire Mike Clayton. Clayton's Victorians back on course from today. We're probably keeping you from a tea time, but it must feel like a bit of a weight lifted from the shoulders. Uh, I know that there's a few issues about the rules not being completely sorted in Victoria, but much joy at golf being back on the agenda after, what is it, six or eight weeks you've been out off the course? I don't know. It's been a long time. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people are excited about playing, which is yeah. good. I think sure the courses will be as full as they were when we locked down. Yeah, indeed. Have a lot, it's, it seems like a long time ago now. I was, this must be the longest break you've taken from the game since you were a child, Clates, surely. Well, I'll be honest, I've discovered the joys of beach uh-huh. golf. <laughs> um, St Andrews Beach, the beach, not the golf course, is just around the corner from where I'm living. And I started off maybe a month ago, just taking a club down with three or four balls and whacking him along the shore. And I gravitated to the point where I just took my practice bag down and tipped him out and started hitting him. And there are so many fun shots to hit. It's great practice hitting off hard sand. Um, you quickly lose sympathy for people who think you should be able to drop out of sandfield divots. <laughs> it's great not having to hit the rubbish reduced flight golf balls that my golf club and every other golf club serves up to its members. On the range, you mean, is a practice? On the range, yep. yeah. To the point where if they served up wine that was as bad in, in the clubhouse, that was as bad as the golf balls they served up on the range, the members would be spitting it out. <laughs> um, what else is good about it? Barefoot, Clates, barefoot or shoed? No, shoes. Um, it's just so you can see – and you can see how Seve became – taught himself to play such imaginative shots. You go down there with one club and – Picking your balls up and you you might have a five on and you try blasting a few bunker shots and you can see how it creates so much imagination when you play on the beach. I tell you what it sounds like, Clades. It sounds like what kids do. And I reckon kids have the answer to most of golf's questions and they're all the things you forget the longer you play the game. Yeah, they do. And while it's just a joy in playing when you're a kid, mm. you don't you know, you don't That's you, right. And it's what you, you lose, learn, isn't it? I mean, the most fun I had playing golf ever was learning how to play. Yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, discovering clubs and shots and holes and different courses and playing tournaments for the first time and learning how to play when you're nervous and all those things that, are, that make golf really cool. Didn't but playing on the beaches, on the back beach, there are so many, you know, I found a perfect replica of the 13th hole at Sawgrass, the par three the other day, and there's one shot that looks like 
teeing off the fourth at Royal St George's, and there are so many holes, places on the beach where you, where you can find the principles of great holes around the world. Really, you know, there were really cool pitch shots across the rocks, and so much different different stuff, and so many different shots you can find. And of course, it's a massive long beach; it goes for miles. So, depending on where you park your car and walk to, you can you can play an infinite variety of golf holes and golf courses. Now, I reckon that the other thing you get there, Clates, with what you're talking about, is a, it, it's a very thrilling sort of landscape, isn't it? There's a there's a physiological reaction to the space you're in and the shots that you're imagining, and you're, like you're saying, hitting over rocks and those sorts of things. There's some of the things that we sort of miss from modern, completely constructed golf in so many ways, don't we? That thrill element. Well, there was one shot I was hitting that day. It was a 100-yard shot across the rocks with the water lapping up against the, the shore. And I said to someone, I said, you know, if you build a green on the other side of the rocks, people would call this the best par three in the world. I mean, it wouldn't be. It would be the most spectacular par three in the world. But, you know, and the, the other thing that Harley will resonate with is when you're playing on the beach and, and you see the naturalness of the, the the depressions that you could easily build into bunkers and the rocks and the, and the shapes, you see how unnatural golf courses are and, and what distortions of, what Mackenzie was talking about, about trying to imitate the naturalness of nature. When you see bad construction and, and how unnatural bad construction looks and you, and you don't see any of those mistakes on the beach because by definition it is so natural. So any architect can learn a lot about the naturalness of the shapes and how things are formed and how to put golf on the ground without making it look like it should. Well, how to put golf on the ground so it looks like it belongs there. I wonder, Harley, I read something excellent that was the Tate's blog from the other day, and he quoted Jones who famously said that you know the frustrating thing about golf is you have to keep learning the same lessons over and over and over, year after year after year. You solve the mystery, and then six months later you remember you've stopped doing that. Is what Clayton's alluding to there something similar for architects? Would it behoove architects occasionally to go walking along the beach or non-golf land to remind themselves what non-golf land really looks like? No, absolutely. I think you've you've just got to get out into out into Mother Nature and see that raw the raw form. And you know, Clayton's is out there in the elements of waves and wind, um, which are pretty powerful you know, elements of Mother Nature. That that it's such a dynamic and strong force. Um, and the resultant form is this amazing landscape. So I think, you know, whether you're on the coast of, um, you know, Gunnamatta there down at Rye and, and the whole thing, or whether you're inland in the desert of Australia, you can see these forms and see how nature works. So that's where you get the best inspiration from, I think. Mm, interesting stuff. Been a bit of an eye-opener for you, Clates, in a funny way? Uh, well, yeah, well, I've rediscovered the joy of hitting proper golf balls when you practice, you know, hitting – you know, we've just gone away from in Australia of hitting decent golf balls on golf practice fairways. Well, you know, these reduced flight balls just drive me insane. It's just horrendous to hit. So hitting. Are you saying don't roll the ball back, Clates? <laughs> well, no, roll the ball back, but make it feel good. Make it, just make, make a make piece of mush. Well, like a golf ball, yes, yeah, indeed. You know, they're just they're awful to hit, and the you know, they, so I've, it's been beautiful just hitting decent golf balls, and of course. Any miss hit is exaggerated by the sand. If you hit it fat, it just doesn't go anywhere, mm -hmm. obviously. So, well, that, again, you can see how Seve trained himself to hit the ball so purely and cleanly off the sand. 
What about the wind, Clates? You'd be you'd be upwind, downwind, crosswind. There'd be some pretty wild wind down there too, right? Well, always trying to find where you're going into it. So it's more the slopes. When I first started, I was just had five or six balls. I would walk out. So if I turned left from the car park, all the shots going out were with the ball below my feet. But all the shots coming back were with the ball above my feet. So it was much better coming back. Kind of hitting with the ball below your feet with the water on the rights. Sure, recipe to lose a few, you know, to start off with six balls and come back with two or three. Yeah, maybe walk back with just a club. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. In a funny way, Clay, you've kind of rediscovered, I guess, how golf was born in many ways. That's exactly Quite how it sort of yeah. was, wasn't I mean, it? Was, you can see why yeah. they started to play golf on that useless little strip of land between the beach and the farm, Yeah, which is what the Lynx land was. Yeah. It wasn't much good for anything else, but – you know, as much fun as it was to walk over it, you might as well take a, a stick and a ball and whack it over it. So it's easy to see how, how golf formed on the edge of the water. Yeah, go out, turn around, come back in, and there's your half-day entertainment or however long it might have taken you uh, yeah. back in the day. Yeah, fascinating. And, and of course, fun. the other thing that Harley will sympathise with is it shows you that golf doesn't need trees to be good. <laughs> That's hitting, hitting all the old, uh, play all the old hits today. We'll, uh, we'll no doubt come to some of that. It brings us neatly to something I did want to talk about. And of course, uh, oh, sorry. First, I got to tell because Cruz, because uh, Logue isn't here, we didn't find out where we can find her. You can find Adrian at adrianlogue.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at rod underscore Murray. You can find Harley at, at Cruz Harley. That's Cruz with a K, K R U S E H A R L E Y. And Clay, you can find it at Mike Clayton Golf. So get on Twitter and look us all up and feel free to interact. It brings us neatly to something I did want to talk about shadow creek where they're playing uh the all caps cj cup at shadow creek this week i'm not sure why it's all caps but plenty of people have pointed out that it is for some strange reason uh an interesting golf course i think is how we might describe it harley an interesting history built specifically for the use of certain casino users you've got to be very wealthy to to play that certainly was the case took a very arid piece of land and turned it into something that looks nothing like what it did before what's your take on a venue like shadow creek well, I, mean, I think everyone's probably seen that iconic image of the just the the bare desert and this this green oasis out in the middle of it. I guess it it just shows that technology has allowed us to put golf in places where golf doesn't naturally exist, mm-hmm. right? You know, whether but it's, does it belong? Well, that you know, there's a question, but it's you know, I guess it's in terms of that technology discussion. It's you know, bulldozers allow us to do things in the the mountains of Japan or put golf courses right in the mis- middle of the desert of Nevada, right? So. Uh, does it belong? It just looks completely out of place to me in terms of this patchwork of this this rectangular piece of verdant green land. Uh, look, totally contrived. Um, it is, I noticed, probably ranked up the sort of number five best public golf course in America. But I think that public is a sort of a, a loosely mm. guarded phrase because I think it's six hundred US dollars around, and you've got to go and stay at the MGM Resorts to uh, to get on. And you can only get on midweek or something like that. So it's uh, look, I haven't seen it, fa- you know, firsthand. Uh, only seen the images like we all have, or seen a bit of it on the TV. But it's um, and you've got you know cool season grasses that are irrigated out in the desert. I don't know where the water comes from, but whether the water comes from Las Vegas itself uh, or like Palm Springs from underneath, there's there's bores pumping it. But it's sort of a pumped up on steroids sort of golf course out in the desert. Does it belong? It, not, I guess not really is, is the answer. It's a personal opinion, I guess. There are some people, Clay, who think it's a great example of man's triumph over 
the elements and nature. And I suppose you could make that case in some ways, couldn't you? But is there a responsibility of golf, golf architects and architecture and those who develop golf courses? The optics of it aren't terrific if you've already got a position that's not particularly friendly towards golf. It's it's an easy example for someone who was campaigning against golf to hold up and say – this doesn't belong, and as golfers, even I think most of us say, "Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to defend that." What's your take yeah, on Shadow Creek? Um, we looked at building a golf course near Ayers Rock years ago, and it was the most well, there's millions of miles, more miles of it, I suppose, but not millions, but it was an amazing piece of land to build a golf course. You would have had to do nothing of the contrivance that um, they've made in Vegas to build an incredible golf in that desert. But, yeah, it's, um, it wasn't even a good bit of desert to build a golf course on. Because if you build a golf course at Baez Rock, it would be a minimalist golf course, which was the opposite of what Fazio did in Vegas, which was a maximalist golf course, I guess, mm-hmm. in bringing in tree. You know, it, was, it just looks totally bizarre. But I'm not sure if I sent you that note that, Harley, there's a guy called Lou Brown on Twitter, an American, who did note that um, the amount of water that the casinos in Vegas used a year, I think $3 billion but be with a billion gallons a wow. year. Wow. He said, much of which are for activities indoors. Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, I'm sure the golf course uses much less water than the casinos use in whatever they use water for. But, I'm um, fairly certain I read somewhere they've cut their water use at Shadow Creek in half or by 40% or something in recent years as well. So, look, there may be no doubt that Lou is a dauntingly intelligent bloke, Clates. Don't ever get into an argument with him. Even if no, I disagree no, no, with him, I would never admit always to Always furiously it. on his side. Yeah, <laughs> very, very much so. It, it, it is an interesting point. I, I guess I'm more concerned about the optics, Harley. You and I were just talking before we started, as we often do, about golf's yeah. image problem and uh, we're entering an, an era where it seems that there's an awful lot right around the world and here in Australia, definitely. Public golf, uh, its future is not secure. Uh, lots of public golf courses now earmarked for, well, we could do other things with that space, either leaving it as open space or taking it over and building uh, housing and real estate on it, which is obviously much more profitable. The optics of something like Shadow Creek, whilst you know they can't take direct responsibility, it, it sets an image for the game, doesn't it, for those who don't play the game, which we know is false, but it's very hard to overcome and we don't do enough to overcome it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, Shadow Creek was built, what, 30 years ago and sort of well, opened about 30, early 90s, wasn't it? I, I think, think so. And, and, yeah, it was an open checkbook too, wasn't it? I mean, the spend would have been enormous. I don't know what, what it was. but It was kind know. of the point of it, I guess. It, it's that kind of a – look what we can do. That's what I mean. Some people think that's a real triumph, and in some ways you have to admire the – the the achievement, but not necessarily the outcome. Or yeah, I mean, it really was this mastery over nature, wasn't it? And and not working with nature. And you look at you look at Shadow Creek versus some of the courses in say Arizona, where you've a bit more sympathetic to the natural terrain, where it's basically ribbons of fairway, and off the side of it, they've left it pretty much you know native and natural and and sandy and and cacti or whatever. It's it's a very much a, a different look. So. I think, yeah, this complete sort of dominance and mastery over nature as opposed to working with it is what the example of Shadow Creek is. And it is, you know, it's not a great example for golf, of course, I don't think. Yeah. It's certainly not the look I prefer. And I find the, the longer or the older I get, the more I'm drawn to the more natural-looking golf courses. Is, uh, it's a cliche to say it, but you look at, for the most part, golf in Scotland and Ireland and the Lynx golf of the world. And it looks like it sits in its landscape coats. I think that probably goes back to what you were just talking about with the beach. Golf that sits naturally and softly on the terrain on which it's built. 
Well, there are a couple of segues there into a project that Harley's involved with at Royal Sydney. One, the hatred of golf that some of the people who live nearby have, but how you can take a piece of land like that and make make it look less natural than it ought to have looked by planting things on it that don't belong. So I'm sure you saw the article in the Sydney Morning Herald um, however long ago, hardly six weeks ago, about the plan to take out 560 trees or whatever and the vitriol of the non-golfers toward the golf course and the plan and, you know, to the point where take the golf course off the people and make it a park, which was, well, it's a privately owned bit of land, so it's a bit tricky to do. But to me, the ignorance of the non-golfers as to um, the importance of doing what you want to do, as I understand it, which is take the golf course back and make it feel more natural by taking out the stuff that doesn't belong there and replacing it with vegetation that does. So, um, you know, there's a whole lot to unpack there. But Without putting most in important, a, yeah. the most important role that golf courses have in cities for non-golfers is that they're the, they're the only preservers, really, of, of, of totally Indigenous vegetation. I mean, there wouldn't be any heathland in Melbourne if it wasn't for Royal Melbourne and Kingston, Heath and Victoria and Peninsula and the Sandbelt, it would all be gone. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So, I think- you know, the, the way golfers – well, golf made a mistake in, in, the, in the 20s and 30s when we planted golf courses out in not using only Indigenous vegetation. The, 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 the settlers and, and the people who developed golf bought in European trees and then in the 60s they all decided that Australian native trees were fine. So let's bring in – trees from Margaret River and plant them in Melbourne and trees from Coff Harbour and plant them in Perth and, you know, just lunacy, really. Yeah, and all so, um, But, you know, that's that's what golf has to sell in the future is what you're, what Harley's trying to do at Royal Sydney with Gil Hans is restore the land back to the, the, the flora that, the way it was before the golf course was on it. Exactly. I mean, the, the reason why the, um, I guess, the forebears of Royal Sydney, where it is today, went from Concord to... Rose Bay was because we had plenty of that sandy, linksy land that reminded them of the the land back in Scotland. And Do we know what it looked like prior yeah, to yeah, those iterations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Photographic no, evidence. Okay. Absolutely, it was you know wild, windswept land. And in actual fact, um, down in the low low areas, there was where the water table was, is where the Chinese market gardeners had their their gardens growing vegetables for Sydney. But the golf course stretched right out to uh, Bondi. I mean, it, it, it there's I think there's probably five or six iterations of Royal Sydney before it got to where it is today. But uh, it wasn't until uh, and the and the wind th- you know funneling through Rose Bay was had an unstable edge to that that side of the golf course. And uh, it wasn't until New South Head Road was built and marram grass planted to stabilise the dunes that the club could then pull its golf holes back into where it is. And they slowly acquired land. But the interesting thing about Royal Sydney, it's never been designed as an 18-hole golf course. Um, and this opportunity with, with Gill really is to properly design the 18 holes without the incumbents of trying to work within tree corridors, which has been the brief to previous architects. So I think... Um, it's a you know it's a great opportunity chance for the club to get it properly designed in terms of the vegetation as Clates alluded to. I mean we've there's been plantings of trees going on there and, and a lot of it was you know basically up until 1949 the course was pretty open had a lot of ground flora um, a lot of the heath the, the native grasses the coastal vegetation some of the 
banksia scrub vegetation throughout it and then with the planting of the trees by a well-intentioned uh, member in 1949 um, within 20 years that that flora started to get lost and the whole character went from this open coastal heathy landscape to a parkland and you know what we see today is the climax of that and the fairways got narrower and narrower as the trees developed and then they just basically put an irrigation system to react to the narrow fairways so the whole the whole place is you know got changed within 20 years already people lamenting the loss of the character and now the club's at its position to turn it around and that turning around is there's six and a half hectares of coastal heath vegetation that we're going to get into the place which is getting that ground flora back into the site and as Clayton's alluded I mean if it wasn't for the golf courses, all that ground floor, all that heat would have just been slashed out by a tractor and a slasher in a park, just getting rid of it all because there was no sense of the importance of that vegetation. We now know that vegetation is important and it works really well with golf. And it is all about flora and the fauna. The fauna opportunities to bring back into Royal Sydney is huge and, uh, and with 110 different species of plants. But in order to achieve that, we do need to edit some of the mono stands, and I, you know, someone said it's an urban forest. These are sort of biological deserts, to be honest, of cooch grass and stands of swamp paper bark that don't really belong in the areas they are. So, to turn this around is is a phenomenal opportunity. Uh, and you know, people are saying we're going to get rid of an urban forest. Well, it's it's not an urban forest at all that we're getting rid of. It's it's something that was created by the hand of man in the fifties, and uh, we can t- return it back to something that's pretty special, actually. Yeah, it's a which was my so that was my objection to the, and you don't expect anything more from the Age or the Sydney Morning Herald anymore because they don't have golf riders anymore. But my objection to the article was that was such was such an ignorant, ill-informed, didn't present both sides of the argument, um, typical kind of newspaper seven hundred word headline grabbing rubbish really. Man bites dog. It's not hard. Yeah. It sells. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it's easy. Yeah, you know, in the old days, <clears throat> Jack Dylan or Peter Thompson or you know, Bernard, Darwin, Bernard Darwin in England would have written a 2,000-word essay explaining everything properly. And people would be free to disagree with it, but it would be explained properly as opposed to, you know, Toffs slash 600, 570 trees which was basically what the article was. And then the people who hate the Sydney Toffs pile in and say, this is a joke. Well, you know, is that the quality of the, 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 the debate we're going to have? Yes. Horrendous. It's 2020, Clates. Have you not noticed? That is exactly well, is. the you quality know, of the debate. very <laughs> thumpy in Fox News, sky after dark, just that way. <laughs> un- unwatchable crap. But, oh, you know. That's my Hopefully fault. Hopefully, we can do better. I set him off there. I put the key in the back and wound it up. Yeah. That's, uh, that's my my own fault. It's a micro example, is it not, Harley, of this broader problem that golf is facing. It's coming under increasing pressure. Now, Royal Sydney, of course, is a private golf course, as Clayton says, and that's true. And it's, it, it won't be that easy for it to be taken away from those who own it, uh, per se. And we're not at that stage yet. Public golf doesn't have that example. We can already see the resistance and the influence that that, you know, 570 trees to be cut down by a bunch of rich Sydney people has caused. And I think, you know, the clubs had to respond to that. And there's a whole process going on over there and i'm sure it's extremely sensitive i don't want you to get you into any trouble but well ara doesn't have that protection um 
public golf courses across Sydney don't have that protection. Moore Park probably doesn't have that sort of protection of being on private land. And all of these issues affect those courses and clubs the same, don't they? How do we educate? The danger here is that we end up in a rock-throwing competition. People who hate golf over there throwing rocks at golfers and golfers over here throwing rocks at them. And the truth of that is that nobody wins. And ultimately, public golf would lose in that. How do we turn that discussion and get people to understand, to at least have a discussion and educate people about what actually is happening and what can be done? Well, I, I like that last bit, what can be done. And I think I think there's a lot of public golf courses. You know, the the, the operation is a pretty tightly run a run operation typically. But I think, you know, the you know, getting back to this vegetation side, I, I think there's you know, like, like the loss of this ground floor I talked about at Royal Sydney, it's the same next door at Willara. Like it's, and, and the City Council has its own biodiversity strategy. The opportunity to place like Willara Golf Course next door is to start to embrace that whole thing as well and start to bring in more of the um, flora and attract the fauna of, in terms of this whole strategy. So, uh, And it doesn't cost a lot of money, that's the thing. And, and it should be part of regular sort of management of these places. These golf courses have a great opportunity to do that, and and public golf and uh, and private golf both have a responsibility mm. as is land uses to do this. I, I sort of um, throw my hands in the air when someone when I hear a story that you know City of Sydney has some leftover advanced fig trees. Oh, let's send them down to Moore Park and we'll plant them there. Well, I can guarantee you, in twenty or thirty years' time, those trees are going to be a big problem. Whereas Moore Park has huge areas of land where they could actually. Uh, convert this to natural uh, ESBS and coastal heath and all these sorts of things. Um, and I think that's part of the responsibility of, of public golf and private golf is to really um, boost up these parts of the assets and, and communicate those stories because it will work, I can guarantee, once we start to opening up these sort of areas. And we, you know, if you look at a typical golf course land, there's um, – you know, probably 30 to 40% of the land at, at most would be turf and the rest of it doesn't have to be turf. That's what we spoke to Kate about last time you were here, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. So, so they're, they're the opportunities. And as I said, it, in, a, in the overall scheme of things, this sort of stuff is not a big cost. Um, $1.50 to $2 a plant and you can do, with a very small amount of money, you can start to make some quite positive, a lot of positive change. And then golf industry and if, you know, the stakeholders with local government, if it is a public golf course, uh, if we turn things around and, and start doing these positive um, solutions and, and opportunities and, and start to document and, and prove that the the wildlife is going to come to these golf courses, we make the golf a better experience. We make the golf um, an experience where people can actually see these things firsthand while they're playing golf, plus sell that story to the non-golfers. Uh, it's, I think it's a pretty compelling case. Mm. Uh, yes, we'll always still get the, the negatives, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about golf too on – chemical usage and water usage and all these sorts of things. We don't in within golf clubs we've got some of the same problems, don't we? Golfers themselves don't necessarily understand or appreciate what amazing facilities golf courses can be. And in fact, golfers will often resist the notion of changing the golf course for the better without necessarily affecting the play if you were to tell them that you're going to do it. So we, education within golf is also important, isn't it, about this sort of stuff. Absolutely. I mean, golfers are mostly clueless when it comes to properly vegetating golf courses they don't you know, the, the, there's always that well-intentioned guy who planted the trees 70 years 80 years ago who's revered in the club as the guy that created our landscape when you know i'm sure harley would agree they didn't really know what they were doing it wasn't their fault they just didn't know what they were doing so 
you know, the argument that I think it's unarguable that let's over the next 50 and 100 years try and get these golf courses back to being places that are vegetated by things that were growing on them before the golf course was put there. So what, what grew here 200 years ago, let's put that back. And it might take 50 or 100 years, but, you know, we can get away from – so you can call Harley and I well-intentioned, but that well-intentioned is breaking from the the well-intentioned guys who 70 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago made the mistakes they made. You know, how do we get the game and its vegetation back on track so that – Golf courses are the, the really important suburban environmental havens that they can be. And, and certainly they are, but they can be so much better than they are. Informed and well-intentioned is certainly uh, preferable to just well-intentioned, isn't it? Is that a pipe dream, Harley? Are you and Clates and people like you, are you all pipe dreamers? No, I think it's a, I think it's a real practical, really a very practical um, solution. I mean, I think... It's, it, it does come back to sort of economics and, and, and practical things, and, and it's, it's not difficult to do. Um, we've done some sample areas at Royal Sydney, and I sort of pinched myself. I was there about two weeks ago, and it doesn't look like the hand of man has been into these areas where we've revegetated these samples. And the diversity of plant life and even fauna that's already coming in, and it was very simple. It didn't take a lot to do. So I think it's just, you know, People like Kate Torgerson, you mentioned before, that you know they're doing. She's doing fantastic things, and I think some of the superintendents around Australia are too. And I think once clubs realise that it it doesn't cost a lot of money to do it, it is about um, reducing some of your inputs in terms of. I mean, nearly every golf course has a bit of mown turf that's just mown out of habit, rather than being mown playing surface. And if golf courses start to look at these areas where they're throwing you know hours of maintenance and and inputs to mown turf out of habit, and say, well actually no one actually plays off this bit of the corner of the golf course little triangle here let's naturalize this or i think the word in um in europe is rewild these areas okay, yeah. and so if we rewild some of these areas and whereas opposed to what the perception of golf and golf courses back in the 20s through to the 60s 70s and 80s was that you improved these golf courses by the noble act of planting trees well we all know, now know that these these noble acts of planting trees, which was, you know, no one was going to go and plant a six-inch high little piece of heath plant because you didn't get any satisfaction out of that. Plant some trees and you can watch it grow and, and you can sort of be part of this sort of... People will leg- remember you in le- 70 years' yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The legacy landscape <laughs> yes. that, that people remember you or curse you in, in decades later. But I think... I think that just there wasn't the knowledge there then, and I guess these golf courses existed with paddocks around them. We're now surrounded by houses, and and so they are valuable assets in terms of this whole um, biodiversity uh, point of view. And and I think biodiversity is the key here. And and every golf course can look at improving and and, and bettering its biodiversity. And these are they they're great places for doing this that squeeze for space is only getting harder and harder and i guess that's what we're talking about here and under those circumstances what you need is an example to point to ironically could royal sydney become an important example of what's possible with and for golf in an urban environment because lots of times what you need with this stuff is one pioneer to say right there winter park springs to mind that's a pioneering effort there and once one's done it and been successful lots of others say hey we could do that too could royal sydney become that for us here in sydney i know that royal melbourne will come to royal melbourne royal melbourne's been that 
and Kingston Heath and Victoria, as Clayton says, down in Melbourne. Could Royal Sydney become maybe that turning point where we can start to do that here in Sydney? Oh, absolutely. I think it can. I mean, uh, Bonnie Doon, with Clayton knows well, it, it it started off on that direction as well and has done some good things, and I think it's it's an ongoing work in progress. And these things do take time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years to, to sort of turn these places around. But... Um, yeah, look, Royal Sydney has the land and the means to do it and, and a commitment to doing it, so it, it can be done, and, and it is heading it in the right direction. We've talked before, Clates, about the, the lack of a 50- or 100-year plan. You've often pointed, pointed to China as an example. If golf was you know, predominantly played in China, there'd be a 50- or 100-year plan, and you'd just do it, you'd figure out what was best for the game, and you'd get on with it. This is kind of what this stuff's about, isn't it, this longer-term plan. Now is the time golf needs to be thinking about its future in urban centres and big cities right around the world, but here in Australia where we live, we've got to think about it in terms of our local golf. All that stuff Harley's talking about is crucial in that discussion, isn't it? because golf is part of the broader community whether it wants to be or not. Just because we've got fences around golf courses doesn't mean that they escape scrutiny uh, or that they have no responsibility. We need to be doing this stuff. Don't we? Do you think there's enough... You know, there's enough acknowledgement of that within golf? No, not really. But I've, Harley, I think you saw the north course of Peninsula, which is that's how the sand belt should have been vegetated. It's purely heathland and uh, the indigenous coastal managums. And every course should have been like that, really. But every course, pretty, rural Melbourne, not so much, headed off in the other direction by importing stuff. So over the next 50 to 100 years, Golf's environmental credentials are going to be around havens for Indigenous vegetation and, and great examples of it. And, you know, Kingston Heath started down that road with Graham Grant in the 80s, Victoria with us in the 90s, Peninsula, um, you know, not so long ago. But Woodlands was always pretty good. But, you know, Metro Commonwealth, the Yarra Yarra were, you know, terrific golf courses, but they were appallingly planted, terrible, really. So their, their job in the next, and Yarra Yarra's already started, their job in the next 50 and 100 years is to become what Peninsula and Royal Melbourne and Kingston and Victoria are, which is great examples of the Australian environment untouched and the, the way it will, not untouched, but restored to back the way it was. And, of course, then the, the, the very next question that comes up is, well, that's terrific, Clates, but it's all locked behind the gates for the rich toffs who are members at those golf clubs. Royal Melbourne, in fact, is a great contributor, is it not, in this area? And I always like to – people would have heard me mention it before on the show. I think we've talked about it before on the show, Harley. They're suppliers of native heathland plants to local nurseries. I think they have an open day or an open week, probably coming up around this time of year, each year, where arborists and plant experts are welcomed onto the course to study the – the flora that's on there, and it's become a really important part of that botanical community, hasn't it, Clates, Royal Melbourne? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, it does. And it's my auntie's a she's a bit of a I won't say a, a bayside nut, but you know, <laughs> she's been one of the leaders of that movement down there, and she loves that stuff. And um, how do you know the George Street Reserve? Yes, yes, absolutely. She, she's been looking after that for years, and yeah, you know, it's an amazing block of beautiful indigenous heath. So, of course, the benefit for golf is that it makes the game feel so much better. I was about to say is that. It's the perfect vegetation. Not only is it environmentally responsible, it's the perfect vegetation for golf. It's beautiful on the edges of bunkers. It's great in the tea carries from the, you know, the tea to the fairways. It makes the game feel so much better. Mm. 
you, you walk past a row of ugly mahogany gums, and it's just, ugh, they're out of place, they're ugly, they're dangerous, they don't work. You know, the, the heath is the complete antithesis of a poorly planted golf course. It just grates on what, well, they grate on me because I see how how much better it could be and, and how much better golf can be than being sentenced to being stuck with the mistakes of the 20s and 30s. I love that you didn't take the opportunity during lockdown, Clades, to study a diplomacy course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Clueless well, golfers and your crazy hardy already on this episode. <laughs> so nice to see that you haven't lost your edge there. Are we making headway, Harley? Yeah, yeah, yes, we are, definitely. I think, um, you know, Peninsula, Clates you know, mentions Peninsula and, and, and particularly the North Course, obviously, where a lot of it remained, the heath remained intact. I think there's amazing work both north and south that's opened up the light and, and thinned out the uh, tree canopy, which should have happened naturally anyway. Um, and there's a bit of junk planted at, at Peninsula over the years, which is no longer there. Uh, and it's really, you know, celebrating the heath that, that's done, I think. And it, and all the golf courses, you know, Commonwealth's on a program now of doing some of it, uh, some of the heath vegetation. Kingston Heath's got a commitment. And I think one of the, the some of the comments you know, is that oh, all these, you know, with all this heath program, these courses are going to look the same. Well, they they won't. They've all got subtle differences in their vegetation. So while it is a sort of the sand belt heath, there is different mixes and and and, and scenarios of, of plants depending on the the sand type and the moisture and all these sort of things. So there is um, some really interesting subtle differences, and uh, and I think it's it's very cohabit you know, what's the word it, it it just works superbly with with golf as clate said and and uh yeah it's it's a very achievable scenario it's it really is yeah but if they all look the same you know if commonwealth and metro looked a bit more like kingston heath and victoria and royal melbourne would that be a bad thing not at all and i think yeah, I, mean, I think they i think they won't and i think there's enough uh, variation i guess particularly at commonwealth where you've got some low-lying moist areas and you've got a, a natural lake within a golf course it it'll there'll be subtle differences yes there'll be the same plants but the differences and the and the mixes will be so subtle that they will have their own identity still and you know despite the architecture being a bit different anyway but they will still have their own vegetational flora identity lynx golf all looks the same quote unquote doesn't particularly to the untrained eye that's the truth of it if you have a drone shot of you know lynx lynx golf course they predominantly look roughly the same kind of idea yeah, that yeah. treeless land with bunkers sort of dotted through them that yeah. uh that uh yeah. yeah plus there's always been this silly you know occasionally a club will say that a, a sandbelt club will say they want to be unique well the, you know, how many sandbelt courses are there in the world yeah that's right 12 15 <laughs> how many golf courses are there in the world i mean they're already unique golf courses and you know if royal melbourne's a model then let's just do what royal melbourne do yeah yeah. It's always a pretty good rule. Of, you can't go wrong if you follow that rule. No, indeed. Now, of course, the other thing, Clayton, I alluded to it before, this notion that, you know, at Royal Melbourne, it's really only available to the Royal Melbourne mel members mostly, and that's true. Public golf doesn't have to be that way. Harley and I were discussing this just before we started chatting with you earlier this morning. What is, have you had a chance to think about it? I know I keep suggesting that we need to learn as golfers to share, but I never seem to come up with any ideas about how we might go about that. Perhaps it's about time golf started suggesting the potential solutions about how we might share the space. And the interesting thing that Harley touched on, I thought, was the time. Tell us what you were thinking. I had an interesting chat with Sandy Jamison about this last week as well from One Club fame. 
Yeah, look, I was just thinking, you know, with the sort of some of the threats. Closer to the mic, then. Some we of the all thre- want to hear what you've got to say. Just thinking with some of the threats to, to public golf and, and, and councils doing this sort of land grab, but potential land grab of public golf courses. I'm, I guess the, the, the thing I mentioned was instead of a land grab, let's look at a time grab. So, where, you know, out of seven days a week and daylight hours, maybe these pieces of land don't has, doesn't have to always operate as golf from sunrise to sunset. So we manage the time grab in, in the sense that there'd be certain times of the day where, you know, pre-7 o'clock in the morning or pre-8 o'clock or, you know, after 5 o'clock, it's open, back open to the public to walk dogs, kids and do, and, you know, just passive public recreation. And and so within a seven-day week, we sort of um, work that as opposed to saying, well, that's just golf, let's just shut down the golf and then open to others. So I think... There must be a way that we we can integrate other uses into these public golf courses. And look, I guess the greatest example of this, of course, is the old course at St Andrews. But I think I think golf needs to think about saying, well, we're just not going to shut out the the public out of this space seven days a week, daylight hours. We need to look at a, a, a solution where we can integrate public use. Otherwise, there will be more of a reason for a land grab um, to 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 take this land and and as these. Suburbs get denser and denser and more and more apartment buildings get built and there's no more green space getting built. Obviously, they're looking at these golf courses. So maybe that's maybe that's what golf needs to do is get a bit more proactive and, and look at um, a time time and space share as opposed to this land protecting, this, this is protecting the territory, so to speak. You might uh, feasibly and rightly argue about whether that makes sense to keep building without the green space attached to the building development, and we should be doing that. But you're right, this is kind of what's happened. I mean, Clover Moore is the classic example of this here at Moore Park in Sydney, where she points to the apartment blocks across the road and says, these people have no green space, and they have to look across and see all of this green space here reserved for the few, which begs the question, well, Clover, who approved the building without insisting that the building came with its own green space? Uh, in there somewhere. So that's one issue. From within golf clates, we will meet resistance to this notion, as you well know straight away. Golf courses are for golf. They're too dangerous for anybody who's not playing golf to be a part of it. And if we allow the public onto golf courses, they'll dig up the greens and ruin the bunkers. Well, they, as Harley said, the old course at St Andrews disproves that. And anyone can walk on any golf course in Scotland. There's the right to roam, mm-hmm. which means that any, people walk on golf courses in Scotland and they're, they're town golf courses, really. North Berwick, Dornock, St Andrews, Carnoustie, they're town golf courses that people in the town interact with and use for things other than playing golf. So there was an article in The Age again about Northcote Golf Course about a month ago, yep. about, about the locals in Northcote discovering that, well, here's this golf course that in the lockdown there's no one playing golf. We can use it as a park and have picnics and walk on it and, uh, my view was this is great, yeah, and so, and so let's time share them and let's you know tear down the fences and have people free to walk on the golf course when early in the morning or late at night and you know close it on Monday mornings or whatever. I mean the course is not that busy, but that th- you couldn't do that. So absolutely, there should be sharing with locals and let locals walk on the golf course and tear down the fences. And the deal is, don't come on with your cars and dig the greens up. You know, it's not that complicated, really. Don't be an idiot. Yeah. And, you but, know, you know, people can absolutely interact with golfers, not at 12 o'clock on Saturdays, but 
Sure, there's plenty of time when the golf is finished for people to use the golf course. Yeah, we can fly to the moon. We can work this out, can't we? In a, in a funny way, Clates, it would actually be a great promotion for the game because a lot of people who'd never been to a golf course know nothing about it, golf courses. Given the chance to get some access to it and appreciate what a fantastic place they are, well, apart from the fact they might actually end up getting some interest in the game as opposed to having a feeling of animosity towards it because they're locked out of it, uh, they'll be less inclined to go along with campaigns that say we should be closing the golf course and having just a park or uh, those sorts of things. So there's some, I would think there's some net benefits potentially for golf if done right, but it feels like golf has to be on the front foot here, and that's what I don't see. We don't have a golf department or a golf, you know, some sort of golf entity represents golf solely in this space to make the case for golf and if we don't get across that soon it's a battle we might lose and that would be that could be devastating for the game for the future because of course Harley if we lose this battle for public golf courses and it'll start slowly but it'll and it's always hard to recognize history tells us that it's hard to recognize when the time is now but the time is now it seems to me for this in fact the time was probably 10 years ago so we're already behind the way but once that we start to lose that bit by bit, uh, golf really could disappear as a public recreation fairly quickly. Yeah, it's a scary thought, isn't it? It really and, kind and of is. It's a scary thought. And I think, I'm just thinking what Clay's saying, you know, tearing down the fences. I think the more that golf tears down the fences and lets people into these places and that non-golfers, um, the more they are going to become stakeholders in this particular park that sits down the end of the road, you're right? And then... You know, if councils start to look at this land grab, obviously non-golfers will be also advocating that this, you know, this space stays as as it is, rather than just particularly because they can see how this can cohabitate public public passive recreation space and golf together. So I think, you know, it is up to the golfing bodies and to to get on the front foot. But I, I don't see a lot of imagination coming out of that area, and it's it's almost like let's react to something and rather be proactive, but. You know, what is the vision for public golf? And golf itself, golf body, should have a vision for what public golf is and, and look at some of these these examples and these cases and, 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 and bring it to the fore, I think. So, you know, as Clayton says, let's tear down the fences. We can, we can uh, well, let's tear down the six-foot-high fences and put four-foot-high ones that with... Uh, with gates. With gates and access ways for the people to walk in. And, and of course, they walk in there and, then, and you know... It's it's growing the game. It's it's the six, seven, eight year olds, you know, all of a sudden seeing this playground and next minute they'll go for a walk and they'll bring a little club with them with, with dad or grandpa or grandma and start to maybe hit a light, little white ball while they're just playing in the park and then, then we're growing new golfers. Yes, it's that time, people, where I break into these fascinating insights from Mike Clayton and Harley Cruz to serve the master overlord of the sponsor that helps make all this possible. I speak, of course, of thegolfsociety.com.au, the online apparel people who specialise in the very latest in fashion from the very biggest and most cutting-edge companies, Hugo Boss, Jay Lindeberg, Travis Matthew and more, shoes from Puma, G4, Under Armour, stuff you'll see on TV, but probably not in your local pro shop. There's a discount for being a Talking Golf listener. To get $25 off your first purchase, use the link thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talking Golf, and it's the Talking Golf bit that is important. Well, the forward slash is important too, but the Talking Golf is important. Just the one G in Talking Golf. If you have any trouble, hit me up by email, rod at talkinggolf.com. We can sort it out together. Now, back to two of the keenest architectural minds in the country. 
You don't have this anti-golf sentiment amongst non-golfers in Scotland, do you? Whereas Clades points out, it's the culture. If you've yep. grown up in a town where the golf course is a central part of it, but it's never been closed to you, so there's never been anything to envy, and you've chosen not to play golf for whatever reason, you tried it, you didn't like it, but you don't have this anti-golf sentiment of, well, that's reserved for them. And that's very much what we've got here in Australia. And it's very much what people like Clover Moore are trying to play on. And those who are campaigning against what Royal Sydney wants to do are trying to play on. And we've allowed that to happen. We need to reverse that. That The rest are symptoms. That's the real problem, isn't it? Correct. I think it's, yeah, obviously Scotland, golf culture runs deep. Um, here we've got a lot of other sporting cultures and other recreational cultures, so golf doesn't Try run digging up an AFL park in Melbourne and see how that goes down, saying <laughs> that we should use that green space for a park Exactly. Instead. So, yeah, that's where – so. There we go. There's the example of culture running there. But I, I think too, uh, you know, Royal Park, where Australia's you know greatest golfer started his game of golf. That was as a kid, more or less, jumping a fence and or jumping a sort of low rural fence and finding some golf balls in a in a in a in a tram cutting and and picking those up and hitting a little white ball and teaching himself to play the game. I think I think we we've got to pull down these six foot high barriers and and allow this sort of stuff to happen. And, and look, probably a lot of it still does happen. To be honest, there are public golf courses and I, I think the one of the great things about Australia near, nearly every country town in Australia has a golf, golf course, course yeah. now, whether it's nine holes with sand scrapes or, or an 18 hole course with, with grass greens nearly every town has a golf course so we are we are blessed in the, in the sense that I guess back in the 20s 30s and 40s you know local councils would actually and shires would build golf courses in every town so there, was, there is a culture through uh, country towns um, but it, it is obviously the pressures in the cities isn't it where Urbanisation and is just you know higher density of living is putting a threat on on suburban golf courses and so it's yeah it's it's a interesting interesting um, debate an interesting issue and I think that I'd, you know it'd be good to be part of um, some sort of solution and and proactive way of, of of addressing it rather than being part of the problem. You've just reminded me of a fantastic story which I've always wanted to tell but I've never had the opportunity and this is the perfect one. When I worked at Golflink a couple of years ago, there was a uh, lovely girl there called Jane, Jane Perfect. She's a good golfer too, really good player. And she was from the country around Bathurst Orange somewhere. And she was telling me one day that at the local golf course, now it wasn't, it wasn't Orange or Bathurst, which we know are dedicated, but it was somewhere not far out of town somewhere. Anyway, so country sort of golf course. But on Saturday mornings, one of the golf courses, might have been the second hole, crossed over the local cricket field. And it was just... You know, there'd be four or five groups would play. So the cricketers would stand back <laughs> while the golfers <laughs> played through and then they would resume their game. And when the next group – and nobody thought anything of it and yeah. the groups would play through and they'd all knew each other and they'd wave to each other and off they'd go and half the cricketers would be out on the golf course in the afternoon. And so it uh, so it certainly can be done. Am I right, Clates, is the time now? Do you feel that pressure growing and growing and growing? This public golf debate is – probably the most important one facing the game in many ways. You and I would probably think that the distance debate is pretty important, and I think that ties into it in many ways as well. But this potential loss of public golf, we can feel that pressure growing. Do you, do you feel it or do you sense something different? Well, it's probably more in Sydney than Melbourne, but it's certainly in Melbourne. And Brisbane lost – well, Brisbane doesn't really have any decent public golf. Doesn't they had Victoria Park, which I think is shut down. But um, – Sydney seems to be the centre of it, which is not surprising given no, it's, it's that biggest city. 
Oh, the value of real estate here, Clates. It's the only discussion topic in Sydney and has been since the 80s, and people are obsessed with real estate and what it's worth. And under those circumstances, it'd be hard not to imagine that large tracts of land <laughs> used by small numbers of people are going to come under scrutiny. And golf better get its game together and justify its existence. I think it can be done. I'm sure you do, and I'm sure Harley does too. But we need to get on with it. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to be swamped. Um, you know, we lost Hurlston Park. Hurlston Park was closed by Strathfield Council without so much as a discussion. They put a note on the website in, I think it was February last year, that the golf course, and we accept that it was no architectural masterpiece, but that the golf course, which was a golf facility, will be closed as of March, and we're going to dig a great big hole and fill it with water and plant some trees because it helps to keep the place cooler. And that was it. And there was... There's nary a protest from anybody in the area, um, and that golf course is now lost, and it will never be returned. You know that that's quite disturbing. If you'd decided to close the local pool or the local library, you rightly would have had people protesting and writing letters to the local paper. But the golf course was just lost, and there wasn't. Well, the, wasn't the a same window. thing happened. At, the same thing happened at Elstom, at Elstom which, was, yeah. which was a. It was terribly managed. It was in awful condition. It was an awful example of golf. It was just terrible in the end. But it could have been a terrific little golf course. Just maintain it properly and care about it. And mm. you know, it would have been if, even if you made it six holes, did it make it a cool little place to play golf? And did it get held up in that Northcote piece, Clates, as a real victory because now a whole bunch of wildlife had returned to the creek that runs through it? Did I read that in that story? Or was it a different no, story? Maybe. I mean, I, I haven't seen it for ages, but. It might have, but someone posted a picture on Twitter of a kid playing in foot-high Kaikuya, which is, well, that's a great for the environment, is you know, letting Kaikuya run wild in, in the middle of Melbourne. It's good for snakes. I don't, think yeah. I'd be, I don't think I'd be letting a kid run around, <laughs> to be honest with you, certainly not for the next couple of months, but there you go. So, you know, that was a, you know, that could have been a great example of um, reducing the golf, even building a Himalayas putting green, you know, put some golf there. But don't just – I mean, I haven't seen it for a long time because I've been down at the beach. I haven't been back to the city for months. But um, I'm not sure that's been very well managed. But, Harley, you might know – I'm not sure if you ever played there – the Studley Park Par 3 course. Remember that? Yep, absolutely. I, mean, I walked there with Sandy about – Sandy Jamison about three months ago, just in appalling condition. To think that a local council or Parks Victoria or someone managed that and there's almost no grass on the greens. It's just a – you couldn't play golf there anymore. Just to disgrace what's happened there. Well, you might as well sell it. You know, get however many million for it. Invest that in public golf somewhere else, or or restore it and, and turn it into a really cool little park slash par three course. It could be amazing. But the people who are supposed to manage that place have let it to go to a, just a scandalous um, destroyation of a golf course. And it's right on the doorstep of the city, isn't it? Like there's, yeah, there's a big... It could be an incredible little place for kids to play golf. It could be a beautiful park, great little coffee shop. could have a really cool Himalayas putting green. There, there are some beautiful old indigenous gums there. It could be an amazing little place that, that incorporated golf with a park, with a coffee shop, with, mm. you know, in a, in a really heavily built-up part of the city where kids could go and learn how to play golf. It could be amazing. And it's just a complete mess now. This is what I say. I think this is where, where golfers miss the point. You could create a hub around golf that's not just about golf, and that's 
golfers have this, we have this about every facet of the game, this narrow view of what golf is. It's 18 holes, it's par 72, it's four par fives, four par threes, it's stroke play or Stableford. It's, you know, we've done, in, at every level of the game, we've narrowed and restricted it to these sort of binary, simplistic forms. We do that with golf courses as well, don't we? Very few things are as enjoyable as sitting on the balcony of a nice golf clubhouse looking out over watching people play golf. It's entertaining. It doesn't have you don't have to be a golfer. My mum used to go for lunch with her friends up at Asquith Golf Club, not from not far from her place, because you could sit at the window and look out on the golf courses and they love nothing more than seeing guys losing it. Throwing clubs and having temper tantrums and bashing their bags is a fantastic sport and great entertainment. There's no reason why that can't be a part of that, you know, Botany Golf Club, I think Logan was telling me the other week, they went to Botany. It lends itself to this perfect little flat clubhouse with an area out the front where you could have some seating and a Himalayas putting green and you could have people playing music. You'd have all sorts of stuff going on there. Marrickville Golf Club, I think, does that. They have a band there on, plays on the, the balcony on a Sunday, a bit of jazz or whatever, and there's golf going on in the back. There's no reason why we can't do these things. We just don't yeah. or haven't. Yeah, get some fun into it. And look, these little places, like, I, look, I imagine Botany Golf Course is probably one under threat too at some point. Like, it's... it's. Um, I think the golf club is gone. Golf club, is it? And right. I'm not sure whether the course is still open. But yes, it's a just another... Yep. You know, they're, 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 they're disappearing. It's happening yeah. now. It's, I mean, it's a tight, short golf course. But, you know, with a bit of creativity, that place could be a lot of fun. And as, you know, as Clay says, we kids in there and we've just got to think about this. I guess... Um, Places like Burnley, Clates, I mean, they're, they're probably tight. They're probably, you know, dangerous in modern terms of modern architecture, but so many people go out there, you know, play Burnley, little nine-holer next to the freeway there in, in Richmond in, in Melbourne. I mean, yeah. it, it's, a busy, yeah. it's a busy little track um, and, uh, and, and a great place for, for kids to get on and, and, and play golf. And, and so, you know, your botanies, and, and I guess it comes back to this whole, you know, COVID thing, how, how important the clubhouses and all of these things. It's, mm. It should be more about the golf yeah, clubhouses have been shut and and for a while there, and and uh, you know it's it's the golf and the golf courses that have been busy, and um, you know if they're fun little places, we're going to get get people there, and you maybe detune these clubhouses from these big enormous things that they shouldn't be, and and down to something a bit more simplistic, and bring a whole lot of other things into these into these places where it is the music you say, or it's. Uh, Decent, decent coffee and a beer and a, mm. and a bit of a sports bar with sport going up there and, and golf out the front. Maybe it is the Himalayan putting course and just golf could be just a, getting out there with the kids and Pitch having, and a, putt, having a putt. Three or, holes, yeah. or synthetic or, turf, driving range. Yeah, there's all sorts of potential opportunities. Isn't there? there's, there's so much golf in Australia, it's worldwide, I guess. So much golf, public golf that if we just improved it, it would improve everything about the game. You know, the, the notion of, you can't say put a moratorium on new golf courses, but if, if golf if golf as a was an entity and it didn't spend any money on new courses for the next 10 years and all it did was go on a program of improving existing golf facilities, both in terms of the golf architecture and the entire experience around the facilities, you could, you could sort of you could rid the, the golf world of this problem of being under pressure quite possibly, couldn't you? There's so much potential with golf courses that already exist. Yep, there is. You can make a, there are a lot of golf courses you can make a lot better for not much money. Yeah, exactly, and for, and for a, a great return on investment. Well, I think we've just formed the committee to be proactive for golf with governments around the country. It's going to come down to the three of us, I suspect. Um, 
No, it's not really. Golf Australia, of course, are a political entity and they, they play in a space that we don't have to play in. They have to deal with governments and ministers and all the associated nonsense that goes with that. And I don't envy the people that have to do that. But ultimately, is their responsibility uh, to represent the game proactively. And this is the point I keep coming to. It's got to be proactive. It can't be a follow the follow the headlines. They need to be a Victoria Park before we hear an announcement that it's going to be closed. I think, too, that in terms of some of the public golf, you're right at this, this moment politically, there are, there's government money into tourism assets and, and, and particularly regional areas of, say, New South Wales for, for um, you know, improving, improving things in, in a tourism way or, or a rebuilding way post-bushfires and things like that. There's, there's, there's grants for, um, for um, you know, stormwater management, all these, sort of, all these sort of things where golf courses can play a role within their local uh, you know, regional community. So I think in the current political situation, um, golf could take advantage of some of these opportunities, um, opportunities of, of, these, uh, of government funding to really look at their asset and, and, and turn it around. I mean, people aren't jumping on a plane and flying to you know, overseas to play golf. Uh, they're not flying interstate to play golf right now. They're, they're, um, they're going to throw the clubs in the boot of the car and go and play golf or Victoria will be able to do as of tomorrow for what twenty five k's, but New South Wales here, we're seeing people going. Okay, we'll throw the throw the clubs in the car and they'll go and play Orange for the first yep. time. They've never been there, and well worth doing too. Just quietly, Orange yeah, is a fantastic yeah. place. Yeah. So I think I think there the, there's some other thoughts there. We we're um, we, you know because you know at the end of the day, a lot of these public golf courses run on a pretty tight budget. We can say let's improve them, but yeah. where, where's the money going to come from? They, so they we, can be a money making facility, unlike a football field. A golf centre can be a profitable. Yep. entity run properly and that means being run by some people at least who have some understanding of golf the product and what the retail golfer might want and that doesn't mean creating shadow creek at wallara it means you know providing a golf product that's good value for money and you'll make a return on investment the game itself though you interesting you mentioned regional tourism this event that logs at this week the mid-am and you have them in victoria there as well clates hugely popular and uh and i think probably heavily contested by various regions of new south wales trying to attract them to come there because the spend of that field for those three days that that tournament is held in that that town it's at foster ton curry this year uh, it will be worth plenty a couple of hundred people coming in uh, Mid-am is 35, I think, is the, the age, 35 and above, and, you know, sort of career amateurs. A lot of them are blokes getting away for the weekend with their mates and spending a bunch of money having fun. And so there's a really positive impact on, you know, towns like Foster Tun Curry for having that event in the area for three days. So golf does have heaps to offer, but we are talking to golfers, and this is part of the problem. All of my audience are already golfers. This isn't getting to the people who need to hear it. So that's the next step we need to figure out. So you need to send – here's the commitment I need from you. Here's your homework, Clates. You have to send the link to this show to at least one non-golfer that you know (laughs) so that they can be educated and infected. Same for you, Harley, and I'll do the same, and then at least it'll have uh, achieved something beyond just golf. If I missed anything, Clates, did you want to talk about, of course, the Australian Open PGA and the Women's Open have been cancelled, which is tragic. Uh, Well – Let's keep things in perspective. <laughs> Grading on a curve, it's tragic for golf. It's a real shame, isn't it, Clates? Uh, no Australian Open, PGA, Women's Open, particularly the Women's Open for me, which is really becoming a very important part of the Australian golf schedule. Yeah. So are we assuming that the 21 Australian Open is at Kingston Heath or is it going to be in Sydney? I would How's it all going to work? Does everything get just shuffled back a year? 
You would you would you would assume so. That's what I would assume. Uh, there would be all sorts of contractual discussions taking place. I'm sure because, as you know, Golf Australia needed a release for those two tournaments to be played outside of Sydney, given the deal they did with the New South Wales government, be nearly 15 years ago now, to play the Australian Open almost ex- well exclusively in Sydney uh, for several years. So uh, that'd be some. These are the sorts of things Golf Australia have to deal with that we never take into account. But there'll be all sorts of discussions going on about that, I assume, Clades. The Australian, well, the Women's Open is always in Adelaide. We know that. I think they signed an extension of that deal last year. So that's not such an issue. It's just about which course that it goes to. But yes, I assume, which means I assume we've got a chance of seeing Rory here. Is that where you were getting to, Clades? No. Oh, okay. He expressed an interest. I think the the Vic Open hasn't been cancelled yet, so there might be some hope they play some sort of golf down here. Do you reckon? Yeah, I think they might. Do you think the European Tour would come here for a one-off? No, no, no. I don't think it'll be a Vic Open in the form that we've known it, LPGA or Vic Open, but I think you could have some sort of really fun event. My idea, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about perhaps having a interstate series type event where you had match play with pros and amateurs and men and women in the team and you could put together some pretty interesting teams i think you could make some fantastic spectacles but the other thing the other thing we've lost in the last 30 years clates golfers don't go out and watch golf live anywhere near often enough because they don't know how good it is because they just got used to watching it on tv so the opportunity to go and watch good players play golf in person, that's something like what you're describing, would be a fantastic thing for people to do, for golfers to do for their own benefit, to realise just how much fun that can be. So you're uh, and, most... yeah, and The problem is, of course, for non-golfers or the, the fringe golf fan, if Adam Scott's not there no, of or, course. Yeah. Not, or Curry Webb's not there, they're not that interested. Well, more and more the golf fan too, Clates, and this is a direct result of the existence of pay TV, where we went from when you grew up, when there was one event a year that you could see on television, to through the 80s and 90s, where we see those amazing videos that Rob Williamson posts on Twitter, where the fairways aligned six deep each side at Huntingdale to watch Norman and Faldo, because that was the only chance you had to see them. To this day and age where people watch golf on Fox every week and if Tiger and Rory and Adam aren't in the field, why would they bother getting off their couch and going out because it's some sort of second-class event? That's the, that's, that's, what that, that's the offshoot of what that, you know, being able to watch golf every week has been without understanding what the real joy of going out to watch the top-class players play in person really is and it's something that all golfers should do uh, from time Speaking to time. of watching good players, how about... What Elvis Smiley shot last week. Oh, how good! Well, how good is he, Clates? I, I, you, you know, Sponge obviously, Mike Waite, and he tweeted, and he's not one to tweet hyperbole. He said he reckons he'll be Australia's next world number one. That's a huge call, but it does indicate the talent level of this young man, doesn't it? He is something special. As you know, I know you've caddied for him. And I did take a photo of that tweet and sent it to <laughs> Elvis's mum, Liz, and said, "Pay no attention to this at all." That's exactly right. That's um, exactly right. Nonsense. Yeah, although I caddied for Elvis in the Australian Open last year, and he played. You know, he finished thirtieth, I think. He played really well. Yeah, had a bad day on Saturday, seventy-five, but um, he won the Queensland Stroke played by nine about a month ago. Then won the Capera Bowl by thirteen. Did he shoot 60, 63 on the last day? I think twenty-five so under. 60, 64, 71, 66, 62. 62, Yeah, there you and go. Of course, you know, it's not a, obviously not a difficult golf course, but he not was that easy. Lots ahead of, you know, <laughs> It's, it's not that simple, is it, Clayton? So, so yeah. No, so Elvis is Elvis is really good. Yeah. You know, he, he's again he's out of this it's kind of this two tennis playing parents uh-huh. quarters and ruffles kind of 
um, gene pool thing for, for golfers. It's because obviously Ray was at Ray and Ray Ruffles and his wife Anna Maria were tremendous tennis players, and Gabby and Ryan are great players. And um, the quarters were Regina Rachikova, Jessica, and um, Nelly's mum was a was a tremendous player until she got injured. Top twenty five in the world, and obviously Peter was number one in the world. So. Um, and Liz was a tremendous player. So there's this phenomenon of the children of two tennis players turning into great golfers. So, we, uh, well, uh, Lendl's daughters can all play too, can't they? They're all good golfers, Ivan Lendl's daughters. Uh, they were good, but he was only one. He, he was only the one tennis player. Of course, player. yeah, so he needed to be. wife was not a He let them down not by, not, <laughs> by not marrying a world-class so tennis player. clearly the trick is to have two – Put two. two tennis players together <laughs> to, to produce great golfers. I interviewed Liz on the thing about golf probably last year sometime. She was fantastic. What a great lady she is. In fact, we should get her on the show occasionally. Just a terrifically wonderful woman. And the thing that she said about Elvis that interested me the most was that uh, he's a stubborn kid who does things his own way. And that's quite telling, isn't it, often? Whether you no matter which side of it you're on, Bryson DeChambeau is doing things his own way. And having great success, and I think it's you that said it a number of times, Clates. You know, everyone tries to copy the best, but the best never copy anybody, and that's a that's an intangible that's easy to overlook. But uh, you get the sense that that might be what I was. I, I spoke to Ryan Ruffles about this once. I said, you know, what sort of have you taken? He said, well, just growing up in a house where there were constantly these incredibly successful athletes always there, and you just by osmosis you learn a bunch of stuff about competing. I think. Because Ray coached a lot of top players, did he not? Um, well, and they lived at Iowa, so Mark O'Meara was there and yeah. Tiger was around there. Yeah, yeah so, right. so, I mean, he just grew up around. Around successful athletes yeah. from all different sorts of sports. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the game is, Clades. You're a professional golfer. You would know this. Yeah, at some point, it's not really about the physical, is it, at the elite level? Something separates the very top players beyond just, you know, superior physical skills. And those are perhaps some of the intangibles you learn Growing up in a household of, uh, of successful professional parents, um, that you know that you have innately that others perhaps don't. So, one of them just being no fear of perhaps elite competition and and you know not being intimidated by anyone. If you've grown up with Pete Sampras wandering around your house quite often, well, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't have to be worried about meeting anybody or being intimidated by somebody on the driving range, do you? Enough. Yeah, but that. I think if you know. If the Australian Open was on this year and you put Elvis in the position he was in last year after two days where he was, I don't know, 70, 67, he was running the top 15 probably. If you put him there this year, he'd have a decent shot at winning it. Do a whole lot better. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, well, you can't know everything, can you? So you can only learn that stuff. And as you know, tournament golf, you can only learn by doing it, can't you? You can only yeah. practice so yeah. much, but you don't know how you're going to play and or how it's all going to affect you until you get there. So, yeah, look, a really bright future and a really nice young bloke, Clates, it has to be said, Elvis as well. Yeah, Elvis is a great kid. Yeah, he's, great. A, he's a really good kid. He doesn't have any of the traits that are uh, unpleasant for those of us who have to deal with him. Um, I think that was it. I haven't got anything else. Harley, have I missed anything? No, all good here, right? I think we've yep. slated pretty much everyone, haven't we? made ourselves unpopular in pretty much every part of the country in the world, so... So what's the plan at Royal Good Sydney, Hull? Is it 21 or 22 to start? They're, um, nothing defined yet. They've got to get through um, the process of the DA. But it, it, look, it, it ideally in terms of… It must be a nightmare. Is that a nightmare? No, no. It's it's just got to navigate the way through it. But it, ideally, though, the, there's a window of construction time which 
basically you know is is promised to members of a 12-month construction so that really limits to the time of the year that the work can start so it, if, if it's not April 2021 then it's probably going to have to be April right. 2022 but um, that'll you know have to work itself out but they've got to go through and, and um, go through another level of process with the DA and, and all those sorts of things. It's important for golf in Australia too. A Royal Sydney redone by Gill Hands, just in a golf sense, forgetting all that other stuff we were talking about, but internally in golf will be a real boost, I think, for Australian golf uh, as well. That's a golf course that should be revered around the place, uh, and you'd hope will be, as a golf course. Uh, forget about the club and all, everything else. It's prestigious, we know all of that, but the course itself from an architectural point of view, it doesn't really stand up uh, to what it could and should be. And what Gil and you are going to do out there is, I think, will elevate it to that, and that'll be good for all Australian golf. Potentially. And, and, and some of it, too, is, is, I guess, is as I said, is restoring. You know, if you look at aerial photos of Royal Sydney back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it, it had really wide fairways. You know, and and uh, I think now the fairway average width is like 21 metres is the fairway width. Um, the new average is going to be 41 metres wide, so doubling almost the width of the fairways, but at the same time reducing the amount of mown turf on the on the, on the the land by quite a bit. It'd be too so easy, won't it, Clates? Anyone could tell you that. You double the width of yeah, the fairways, yeah, you make that, the golf course too easy. That, that 15th hole is one of the most interesting holes in Australian golf, Harley, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Dead so, straight, dead flat, 20-yard <laughs> wide fairway. I mean, well, could you get a more boring hole in the 15th at Royal Sydney? So that hole goes all together. Doesn't it? Correct. That gets yeah. redone, and the previous hole gets turned from a par three into a par four, and and so as I said, you know, it's the first chance that within the within the boundaries of Royal Sydney that the, the whole eighteen holes will have a proper design Probably. done, as opposed to just yeah. the brief of working within the corridors, de- the corridors defined by a well-intentioned member in nineteen forty-nine. <laughs> you know, so right. so we've just got to look at the land and look at and which is what Gill's done, and he, and he's you know the 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 adjustments, the re, you know the changing of eight and nine into a par five is potentially going to be one of the best par fives in Sydney, I would suggest, uh, and one of the, you know, the really good par fives in Australia. So there's, there is some great things that are going to happen there, um, and uh, I'm, I'm excited by it and looking forward to happening. And if we've got to – look, if it, if it takes another year till the thing starts, that's not you – know, it's not a bad thing because it just means there's more things that can be made ready and prepared for and planned for, which uh, with a bit of benefit of time will be, I think, a good thing. Just, we'll just add to a better product at the end of the day. So It'll be exciting. As, um, yeah. as Tom Doak was writing about the lakes in the confidential guide, he said it's a, it's a course you must see in a city desperately short of compelling golf. And That's it's right. such a It's crazy. Com- well, well, not a great comment, but it's so true about it golf is. in Sydney. It should be so much better yeah. than it is. You know, Bonnie Doon's better. New South Wales are terrific. Lakes is good. Kalara's better now. I mean, Pimble should be a much better golf course than it is. Royal Sydney should be way better than it is. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, golf in Sydney should be so much better than yep. it is. Pu- pu- public golf should be better. Yep. I've never played Moore Park, but I assume it could be a miles better golf course than it is, given the piece of land it's on. Moore Park could be amazing, Clates. It, it yeah. really is a great piece of land. And uh, if they just stop planting more fig trees on the place. And we, and, and well, it, where it, can it, they plant them, Harley? Well, the guys, are the depot, I've got them left over. There's only one place you can send them. We'll send them to the golf course. Send them to the golf course yeah. and we'll, we'll just we'll just crowd it out yeah. with, with vegetation. And look, the land is fantastic, isn't it? We're, oh, it's just, it's yes. Just, and there's in parts, there's plenty of space. And it's just it's sand and, and what it could be. It's uh, in the middle of a city. It's in yeah. the middle of one of the most, um, you know, highest 
desired to visit cities in the world. Sydney, yeah. people love Sydney. It's yeah. you know, 10 minutes from Sydney Harbour. It yeah. should be something, and it could be something special. Yeah, absolutely. Instead, you know, you've got a mayor who wants to halve it in size and then no doubt debilitate what's left and turn that into some sort of a housing development. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, know, it, it might even, I mean, from golfing terms, I don't know if it has any heritage value, but obviously originally it was what Carnegie Clark laid out the layout. I don't know how much of it's intact, but, I mean, it, it you know, it is there is some sort of, I would imagine, some kind of golfing heritage element to it perhaps, I don't know, but certainly it's it's been there for a long, long time, hasn't it, as well? So, oh, absolutely, yeah. So. At least, thankfully, it's not owned by Sydney City Council. It belongs to the New South Wales government, so, because if it did, it would already be, would have been, would already be done for, so... Uh, yeah, interesting times to come with that, I think. Yeah, I don't think the argument over more parks going to finish anytime soon. It will keep ra- raising its ugly head month after month after month. So yeah. we'll if, stay on that. If, up if, city. I think, if, you know, for all sitting can be an example of what you know, yes. good golf can be, more part might be the example of what 18 holes should should stay perhaps and, and what public golf can be. What Exactly, what it so, can contribute yeah. beyond just a place for people to play two, golf. Two good examples of with a lot of potential sitting right there right now. Might start to turn the tide. All right, we better get on with that. We're going to be busy if we're going to turn this tide in the next uh, 12 months. So, Clates, great of you to join us, mate. Really appreciate that. And uh, enjoy getting back. It doesn't sound like you missed it that much in the end once you discovered beach golf, but enjoy getting back to grass golf, mate. It'll be good fun for you, I'm sure. Thank you, Rod. Always a pleasure to chat to you. And Harley, great to have you in the studio, mate. Always appreciate you coming in, particularly uh, at short notice. So thanks for doing that. Thanks, Rod. It's been been a pleasure. Thank you. And that wraps up episode 44 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. But don't panic. We will be back to do it all again next week on episode 55 when Logue will be back as well. We'll see you then.